Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome back, gang, to another episode of Blockhead. Today's guest Glenn Head, the man behind Chartwell Manor, one of the best-reviewed graphic novels of 2021, showing up on just about every best-of list you can find. Chartwell Manor topped all of them, and Robert Crumb calls it a masterpiece, and it indeed is a very powerful, very moving work about Glenn's experience at life in a boarding school in the early 1970s, wherein the headmaster was given to acts of abuse, uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, uh, emotional, mental abuse, perpetrated at the ins- this institution of Chartwell Manor. It's about that experience. It's about the fallout of that experience and the consequences of that kind of abuse on, uh, on a life. And uh, it, it documents Glenn's own path dealing with this over the course of of the next 30 years and uh, it's a really extraordinary piece of work and a very brave piece of work i highly recommend it and encourage you to find it to, to search it out from fanographics books from your local comic shop right pick it up at your local comic shop chartwell manor was preceded in 2016 by glenn's other memoir chicago indeed it's called chicago subtitled a comics memoir by Glenn Head. And this is an equally powerful book, equally harrowing in its own way. It chronicles Glenn's experiences after dropping out of art school in the late 1970s and life on the streets in Chicago, trying to make it as a cartoonist and finding himself on the street and hungry and um, in in really deep trouble. And uh, again, really powerful piece of work a coming of age really uh, in a way that is frank and um, and again you know sometimes very scary uh, among the disparate characters that the reader comes across in Chicago are Muhammad Ali and Robert Crumb and Skip Williamson uh, a really unique mix of individuals uh, who Glenn encounters on his journey through through Chicago. Both books are united by Glenn's style, which is rooted in the underground comics that were his inspirations in the late 60s and early 70s. The work of Robert Crumb, work of S. Clay Wilson, the work of of Jay Lynch, Skip Williamson, and uh, Kim Deitch, and so many others. That work is funneled through Glenn's own sensibility to create something that is unique and personal and highly distinct, but nevertheless just as frank and brave as uh, underground comics were in their day. Carrying it forward, though, in the form of this graphic memoir and uh, something that is really an heir to the tradition, but 
takes it forward even farther into uh, the 21st century. So it's highly, highly unique, but nevertheless uh, rooted in that tradition. So th these are both really powerful, powerful memoirs, and I hope you'll check them out again from Fanagraphics, uh, from your favorite comic shop, wherever you buy your comics, order them there. Or, as a very last resort, you can find them on Amazon as well. So uh, be sure to look for the work by Glenn Head, Chartwell Manor, and Chicago. Glenn is really forthcoming in conversation. We had a really great talk. And so let's get right to it then. Uh, uh, without further ado, Glenn Head and myself in conversation. Hey, Glenn. Welcome to Blockhead. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And congratulations on uh, the success of Chartwell Manor this year on so many uh, so many best of 2021 graphic novel lists. It's incredible. It's been met with yeah. almost universal praise as far as I can tell. Yeah, as far as I can tell too. I, I've been very, very happy about the uh, response it's gotten. It's been very favorable, very positive. Um, I, I can't say I have any complaints and I'm uh, very happy about that. Uh, I, I feared... Because you know it's it's kind of a dark book. It might be too much for people, but that uh, fortunately has not been the case. So yeah, I've been I've been very happy about that. It's been very gratifying. I'm curious, um, and maybe this is going too far a question, but you know, have the sales been good um, commensurate with the the reviews? Um, I mean, thinking about you know just from a cartoonist point of view, thinking about well, is a book like this going to sell and find an audience? And so, um, what do you feel? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I feel it has been doing well. Um, I, I'm still hearing about it from a lot of people who are still buying it, which is always a good indication. And then there's the fact that it's been translated into like uh, five different languages, although not all those books are out yet. Uh, the only thing that hasn't yet happened that I'm pushing for, and I'm going to continue to push for with my publisher, is that it come out in uh, paperback and that it come uh -huh. into a second printing. So, but other than that, from everything I can tell, it seems to be doing very well. Yeah, and, and I can imagine, I mean, this is the kind of, kind of book that deals with, you know, very thorny subject matter, uh, very delicate subject matter, but at the same time, it's very important subject matter. And right. I, I'm sure there are a number of, of people who, you know, feel like this is an essential piece of work to be out there and actually something that would, would make a great film as much as it would also be uh, uh you know it's a great graphic novel it also be great in other media and i think even reach an even larger audience which you yeah, know is a very uh, important a, a lot of people have uh reacted that way about it as uh something that would work cinematically because it's a pretty cinematic book and there there has been some movie interest but uh nothing has come of that so far and i wouldn't expect it to it's too soon if something like that happens great if it doesn't i'm okay with it because generally speaking from what i've seen uh most cartoonists are not really all that happy with how their comics get translated into film <laughs> and it's 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 rare that it really works it's like uh it's taking something and trying to morph it into something else and it it often doesn't work and with a book like Chartwell Manor I would be very uh dubious about them really showing everything that needed to be shown to really put it across and not yeah. destroy the flavor of it you know what I mean because in a lot of ways, this is kind of a uh, noirish book, 
definitely has a noir feel thanks to all the blacks and all that. And, uh, you know, you, you always need a third act in any story. And, and there is one to the extent that things are better with my character and his daughter, for instance, by the time the story is closing out, but it's still, you know, pretty dark. So you'd, you'd have to worry about that if it, if it were changed into a movie uh, or a show or whatever. But, you know, those are all possibilities. You know, it's a very, very, I mean, the, the depictions of the world that Glenn inhabits are all very dark, whether we're talking about um, this, his suburban home with his parents or we're talking about Chartwell itself. It's uh, the place is very, very dark. And Brooklyn, too, right, um, becomes a very dark place. Yeah, Brooklyn uh, does, too, sure. There was Chicago first in 2015, and then Chartwell came out this last year. Uh-huh. And so both of them, like, I've read both of them pretty much together. I actually read Chartwell first and then went back and read Chicago. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm I'm curious how long it took you to come to a place where you could deal with the material that's in Chartwell. For example, one of the things I was thinking of is that Chicago doesn't really allude to this story at all. Right, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, not overtly anyway. And mm-hmm. in and Chartwell starts off in 1988 uh, with the character of Glenn sort of facing uh, an image of, um, you know, of Lynch, uh, who is the head of Chartwell, the director of Chartwell, whatever his title was, um, on his drawing table, sort of unable to confront the idea of the novel or the story. Clearly, it's it's sort of something in the background of his mind, but it starts off with his inability to confront it and instead, you know, drinking. And I'm wondering, how long did it take you to come to a point where, you know, you felt ready to deal with this? And then how long did it take to come and come to fruition? That's a good question. And uh, you've hit on something uh, very key in the book, which really is uh, an important theme for me, which is the the struggle to face Mm -hmm. this and the creative struggle for that matter, which are intertwined really in a case like this, because um, it's one thing to face this kind of thing about having been sexually abused and in a boarding school where a lot of bad things happen. It's yet another thing entirely on top of it to tell that story. And as somebody once said, uh, it's it's one thing to write down your story of everything that happened. It's another thing to draw it, which is really something. Yeah. So that's, that's a big deal. Now, uh, that's a long-winded way of getting into the response here of, of what it took to be able to do this. Because the truth of the matter is, I, I would say that in actual fact, I had been wanting to do this as a story almost from the time I was there. I was a very uh, sensitive kid. So at that boarding school, I was really struck by the Gothic nature of the place very much. It it really was exactly as I drew it when I got there that night with the rain and intense rain, this kind of uh, haunted castle vibe that this place happened. And I was I was immediately struck by that, and it it stayed with me. And even at that early point, as it shows, I'm I'm first sort of learning to make art, become an artist, and draw cartoons very early on. And so the the point is that 
Yeah, it really struck me as material from the time I was there, all the things that were happening. It just struck me as uh, almost absurd, first of all, because this was the early 70s and I'm in this place that feels like something on another planet, which was this English boarding school where corporal punishment is the thing. And it's nothing like any of the world that I had lived in before then. So that's just worth mentioning. What happened was, as I show in that panel that where I'm, I'm drinking and considering drawing it, but not really, what happened was getting sober, it was one of the first things I thought of to work on. And getting sober ain't everything, believe it or not. And so it wasn't like I could then just dive into doing that work. So I attempted to do some of this material as a 32 page comic mm. in the early nineties and it just wasn't working out at all. There were still way too many influences of other cartoonists, underground cartoonists in my work that were really getting in the way of it. So looking at it, I saw this isn't working. So I stopped drawing comics for quite a while and I was just working in the sketchbook and that shifted gears on my style, my drawing style. My work became much brushier as a result of that. Uh, working in the sketchbook is great for that kind of thing because it alleviates this performance anxiety, you could call it, that drawing comics will bring about. When you're drawing comics, you're up on stage, man. You are an entertainer. You are keeping people engaged. You're doing all that stuff, telling them a good, funny, exciting story and all of that. So the sketchbook was very helpful for getting away from that anxiety and just drawing. So that's by way of explaining the beginnings of being able to draw that. The next thing that really made it possible, really, was the other book that you alluded to, the first book I did, the first mm -hmm. graphic novel I did, which was Chicago, because that helped me to understand what it meant to work on a bigger canvas. Because up till that point, I had just been doing comics, either a six or an eight page or a 10 page or a 32 page comic, you know, something like that. And it's a completely different animal. Um, it really is not the same as doing a comic book. You're, you're dealing with a much bigger canvas and uh, you're not editing things down as, okay. as aggressively. You're mm -hmm. not focusing on the brevity of everything, which is really what, uh, say, a six-page comic is going to be doing. There's a lot going between the panels. And there's much less of that with a graphic novel. You can expand things. That's what it offers you. Sure, sure. You know, there are a couple of things I, I wanted to say in response to some of the things you talked about because you've covered a, a bunch of things. But um, one of the things in regard to the depiction of Chartwell uh, in the book, um, it, it the image that came to my mind, and I'm not sure if you're familiar or not, but we're close to the same generation. Hammer horror movies. Do you remember those mansions in those the the hammer? Yeah, yeah sure. You know, and that, that's what it, Chartwell, the way you depicted it, I wondered if that those were in your mind because, man, it it reeked of that kind of atmosphere, which was, you know, the home of Christopher Lee and Dracula and things of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
you know? Well, I, I, I was thinking of that kind of thing at the time when I was experiencing being there. And I, I was one of these kids that would duck into fantasy life all the time. So when I was at that boarding school, I was always thinking about vampires and monsters and something being around the corner that might attack you because it really did have that kind of darkness and it really was literally a castle. So my being there at that time really brought that out, really brought it to life for me, which is another reason why I've always wanted to draw it. And then, you know, and, and from there I have to add, uh, there's this sequence in the early part of the book that I had always wanted to draw, like since it happened. And, and that was the headmaster coming into our dorm one night and telling mm-hmm. us this story about Satan worship and how he had come upon Satan worshipers as a child and seen this goat sacrifice and all this crazy shit. And then on top of that, even scarier, he says sometimes he's in his office and the windows will be closed, but the curtains will be flying around and the devil will come to him. And you've got to, you've got to factor all that in with the fact that we were like 12 or 13 year old kids away from home being told these bedtime stories. And that's just fucking mind blowing. (laughs) It's just so that's cinematic. And man, I could, I got to tell you, I could not wait to draw that. I have always wanted to draw that. So yeah, I, I really enjoy drawing that. Sure. And it, it is really freaky when you, you read it and you hear it and you're seeing it in that environment. It really comes across. It's very powerful and uh, and really frightening uh, in that sense. Yeah, you, it was you know, it was really frightening. I mean, you're, sure. you're away from home. And so you, it's not like you're in that usual situation of like uh, no such thing as monsters. It's just a movie you're watching or some shit like that. And, and uh, yeah, the whole idea of, of Satan was kind of really a derangement of a, a fearful, frightening bedtime story to, to manage. So yeah, again, all this stuff was very uh, hammer horror and very horror movie and all that. It definitely had all that in it, definitely. Yeah, and it, it always amazes me that none of this stuff got back to the parents. Um, like a story like that, you know, you tell your parents something like that. And most parents would say, this is, there's something wrong with this guy. You know, uh, it's amazing that the story remained as hidden as long as it did, but, I know. Um, you know, that's, that's another issue because I mean, for example, one of the things that you deal with, you know, frequently in the book and one of the, one of the major themes in the book is the inability to confront this issue, certainly, you know, you're talking about it in your case in regard to artistically and trying to deal with it as a story to tell. But then your your parents, I mean, all through the book, and, and this is jumping way ahead of where I wanted to go right away, but the, the confrontations with your mother over and over again, that's like a theme that runs throughout the book. There's a whole chapter wherein you, you, uh, your character in, um, confronts your mother or she confronts you, um, over and over again in regard to this issue and come up against it. And she's just unable to go there and, um, and to deal with it in any meaningful way. And, um, right. so it's, it's no wonder, particularly in that era that this went on for as long as it did without, uh, without anything happening. Right. Absolutely. Um, and that is, is very important. It's important to recall the context. Uh, as I usually put it, child abuse didn't exist until 1980. And what right. that means isn't that it didn't then happen. 
but rather than in our collective consciousnesses, it became real and it was known that such things did happen. It wasn't exactly not known that things like that happened, but there was no vocabulary for them to be discussed. So likewise, um, see, we, we grew up in a funny world, which was, uh, for instance, never accept a ride from a stranger who's driving. We were told that, right? But right. on the other hand, we were told, always do what your teachers or adults tell you. So you were sort of caught in that bind. You, you were told one thing, but you were also told another. And so you weren't really sure how to deal with uh, pressures that might come from authority figures is, is my memory of it. And if you were a kid like me, uh, you weren't really that obedient necessarily. You know, you can, you can see that there's a certain wise guy spirit in my character in this book that's probably partly what got him into the school and also gets him kind of very savagely beaten mm -hmm. by the headmaster at one point in the book because he you know he's he's uh not having a good time there he's hungry he hates the food he leans on another kid for a little bit of money the kid won't give him the money so my character tosses a dessert in his lap and then the headmaster gets wind of that and sort of beats the shit out of me. And I was trying to depict that exactly as it was. I wasn't trying to make myself look like an innocent victim, but at the same time, you know, you're at this place and like any boarding school practically, just like out of Orwell, uh, the food is gonna really suck. And <laughs> so kids are doing what they have to do to survive. And I was trying to show that sort of, you know, uh, that, that struggle for survival and, and what it meant. And anyway, I think I got off topic a little bit, but uh, yeah, just, just trying to depict what that world is like and how, but this actually goes with what you were saying because shortly after that particular incident where I am attacked, the headmaster does everything he can to rein me in and keep me from mm -hmm spilling the beans about it to my folks and right. and the, so. the character couldn't and i think you, de you depict this this tension really really well throughout the book this you know because there are plenty of delicate issues in in growing up wherein we feel like you know some of those things we feel like we can talk to our parents about at least within our generation post baby boom or just end of the baby boom that post-world war ii generation where particularly sexual sexual things you know they, they were very hard to talk about with our parents um in those days and approaching our parents to talk about anything that's difficult oftentimes resulted in great frustration both in on both parties and i think you depict that throughout the book really well i mean it's one of the things that, that you know struck me more than anything else is is i think you say somewhere in the book that glenn um had no one to trust no adult to turn yeah. to and no adult to trust and that led to frustration and it led to anger and it led to acting out and i can you know and i think it's really clear in the book how what the consequences of that inability to communicate had yeah that was that was very important to me to show um because what you're alluding to also uh relates to this this fight scene and see 
I'm a comic book artist through and through. I, I love comic book excitement, action, violence even sometimes. But that violence doesn't mean anything to me if it's just a fight scene, if it's just action. Mm-hmm. And so it was important to me to characterize that, uh, that that's what led to that territorial battle that my character has with some other kid who he doesn't want in his room. And it's like, he doesn't feel safe. He doesn't feel like there's anybody he can trust. And he also feels a little claustrophobic and penned in by being in this dorm that other kids just, you know, breeze in and out of. And so he acts out and you have this big fight scene. And uh, what you have along with that, if, if you look at the face of my character after he has, I guess, won this fight, it's not too attractive. He just looks, he looks crazy angry. He looks like he's in a state of rage. He wants to keep fighting the kid, in other words. And that's what that, I, I was really trying to show that, that, that this kind of behavior is, is anything but, you know, a cinematic thrill ride. It's, uh, it's, you know. Oh, on the contrary, it's stuff, quite harrowing, you know. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, that incident wherein Lynch throws Glenn across the cafeteria um, yeah. is truly frightening. I mean, we read it and we know that this is, this is, you know, being recalled that it's a real incident and the violence inherent within it is harrowing. It's to think that a child is being subjected to this in this way is just, you know, it's God awful. And, uh, um, and, and then what follows is just as bad because later on he's called to Lynch's office again and, and abused yet again in the same, same day. So the violence within it is, I think is very, um, it's, it's very potent and it's very much, there's a, obviously there are, there's meaning behind it because we know there are consequences that follow. Uh, the violence here. It's not gratuitous and it's not just action for action's sake. It's not a superhero comic. This is, this is a real situation and um, something children are defenseless against. And certainly Glenn was. Um, Chicago preceded this book, but it also feels like a part of this book. And, and uh, it's interesting. Did you conceive of the two at the same time or did you know that you had to deal with chicago first before you dealt with this or was chicago a plan to be a part of this book or i'm curious in the relationship between the two because um you know the one neatly kind of slips inside the other if if we were to try to put them together Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's a good question um i Yes, I think I did know that Chartwell Manor was coming after this. I, I did know that. And I think I knew it partly because, as I was saying, I attempted doing this earlier and it just wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. And I think I knew I was going to need to build up my graphic novel chops so that I could do this. So I think I was aware of it. When you're dealing with a, a big project like these books are, you're almost only really thinking about the one you're in the middle of because Mm -hmm. um, you've got to draw it. You've got to get it accepted by the publisher. You know, you're it's it really for me. And this is what's actually most exciting. It's really like making a movie. Um, You're, you're dealing with casting it. You've got to come up with all these scenes. So you're, you're dealing with, I mean, by that, I mean, scenic stuff that you're going to have to draw. You've got to 
get everything captured visually on a grand scale, it really is like a movie. And that excites me because uh, both of these books take place in the 70s. And those movies really excite me. Mm. And uh, urban urban crime movies and, you know, things that, of course, Martin Scorsese did, things like that mm-hmm. are really inspirational to me. And so the biggest excitement in a funny way in doing these books, when I really got into it, was getting away from comics. Um, I felt like I had grown away and out of my own influences and also uh, my own interest in comics, frankly. I've been doing them forever. I've read enough comics to last me a lifetime. I don't need to read anymore. And it was just a matter of just unlocking the trunk and using my influences as opposed to feeling I was in hock to them and building from that. So um, this is this is just my description of what doing all this stuff was like. But I did know that if I could get this done, the odds were pretty good that I was going to attempt to do Charwell Manor after that. Mm-hmm. And it was the best thing I could have done because I attained a higher skill set after Chicago than I had before it. So it wouldn't have been a good idea to try to nail Chartwell Manor down as a first book. And on top of that, frankly, I think I need to walk people into my life a little bit so that they can handle what I'm about to bring to them. Mm. And it's easier, I think, to walk into the world of Chicago harrowing though some of it is than it is to walk into the world of Charwell Manor. Mm-hmm. That's a really, uh, that's a scary prospect, Charwell mm-hmm. Manor, I think. I, I said, as I said early on, um, I knew this was going to be a really dark book and it's asking a lot of people to walk into that world and deal with a character like Terrence Michael Lynch. Mm-hmm. He gets, a lot of real estate in the book, uh, mainly in the earliest parts, but he comes back later. And so that's that's how these things, that's the fruition of how these things came together. And uh, I, I don't know if that answers your question. But <laughs> uh, yeah, they take a long time. Um, and the excitement and the uh, <clears throat> challenge really because it really is a challenge to do that much drawing is very exciting to me um it's very exciting to to try to capture this and it's very exciting to work in autobiography for me especially these kinds of stories that impacted me incredibly like um i knew i really wanted to draw chicago partly because you know there's all these scenes where i'm uh i'm pretty i'm basically homeless and on the street and very hungry and a big influence for me, uh, a literary influence, is George Orwell. And his book, Down and Out in Paris and London, is this book I really loved because it captured better than anything else I've read about what it's like to be hungry on the street. And I thought, well, that would be a really cool thing to try to draw what hunger feels like. Mm-hmm. So that kind of challenge is obviously much different from, say, like telling a joke or drawing a detective story or or working out any of this other genre crap. So um, that 
really drew me in and really made me want to try to depict what these human experiences feel like. And uh, I'm willing to go to the mat for that stuff. I'm willing to give it everything to, to capture that if I can do it. I'm willing to go all the way with that. So. Yeah, and, and your graphics um, are unbridled in a sense. They're, they're um, you know, you let it fly when you have to let it fly. They're not restrained in, in a graphic sense. Um, no, I suppose not. Yeah, they're very expressive, I think, in terms of what, what you're trying to get the reader to feel. You know, there's just kind of visceral quality in your... Mm-hmm your work that I think um, is, is comes to great effect in a number of different places throughout both Chicago and uh, Chartwell Manor. Speaking about Chicago, um, there, there are a couple of things that struck me in that book. And, and I think first, uh, it's been noted previously, I think in the introduction, Chicago begins and ends at a graveyard, which is interesting um, mm-hmm. that it, it begins and it ends in in graveyards. And in the beginning, he's a young man, uh, 19 yeah. years old, um, hanging out in this graveyard, just kind of considering the future, what he's going to be doing. At the end, he's in the graveyard and he's with his daughter. Uh, and they're sort of closed into Greenwood Cemetery and uh, right. but in very different circumstance at the same time it also recalls a moment within chartwell manor where there's a graveyard where glenn imagines himself confronting the headstone of uh, of lynch uh in an imaginary sequence there and it, it's one of those little things that runs through your work and what is the what is the significance really for, of that environment for for you for that character i mean and the you know the idea it runs through both books although not doesn't repeat in chartwell but it's just obliquely referred to yeah um is that i know a- what you're saying and i and i'm i'm not sure exactly the reason I know that like some of it relates to the fact that getting older, you think about death more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that some of it has to do with um, the kind of standard issue thing. I mean, when, when there's a graveyard is like, uh, so what's this all going to add up to? <laughs> I mean, because like when you see a graveyard, man, it's kind of telling you this is where it ends. So the, the big questions become, um, what's this all going to mean? What's all this going to have meant, mm-hmm. you know? And, and in the case of my headmaster, that was uh, kind of a big deal thing in terms of my thinking about him being dead, I suppose. And, and then thinking about, getting even with him on a very petty level, which would be Mm. going to that graveyard and pissing on his grave. And then thinking, not even worth a trip out there to do it. And then the the following page actually shows him just as a sort of segue. He's walking past the graveyard and and, uh, that's in, in Greenwood where I sometimes visit. I think it's Greenwood. Yeah, in Brooklyn. And, uh, and thinking about what it all meant for him. Like, because to, to get beyond the point of revenge fantasies, which actually pissing on somebody's grave kind of is, uh, to something beyond that, like, did he ever think of 
any of the students there who went through that school, you know? And then thinking, probably not. Even on his deathbed, if there was any last moment, it was just give me a few more minutes, you know, just the usual hustle. And, um, but also an acknowledgement that everyone's life is like that. Everyone wants a little bit more time to do the things they wish they could have done. So it humanizes him just a little bit. Uh, I know that 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 was what was on my mind with uh, showing him in hell, because there's a, you know, to to loop it back to the beginning where there's that uh, Satan worshiping thing. He's on his deathbed and he's tormented by demons, which is very enjoyable to draw. But um, so the point being, though, is uh, it was it was an attempt at a sliver of at least understanding, if not forgiveness, because it may not be my job to forgive uh, such a person. Mm-hmm. But I believe it is my job to to attempt to understand. Mm-hmm. And that, that's also what that scene at the beginning in the graveyard, no, not the graveyard, um, the uh, devil worshiping scene is kind of about, because what it shows is that uh, whether that incident happened or not, it, it reminds us that Lynch was at one time a child. And innocent of any crimes probably by that point. So I think it's always important to remember that, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not depicting a monster here. That's something I refuse to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no, there's no sense in it. I, I would never characterize him as a guy with a lot of great qualities. He was a really good cartoon character to draw because, you know, he was like uh, verbose and florid and pompous and charismatic and, you know, bloated so from a cartooning standpoint you're always looking for big characters you know it's mm-hmm. always good to draw big characters because people will want to watch them just to see what happens to them you know what i mean mm-hmm. so sure and lynch is certainly that and the way you draw him is capitalizes on on that for sure i mean it is kind of interesting we read the book i think at least while i read the book um Lynch is, we know from the outset that what this guy is going to be doing, I mean, if we've been prepared by whatever we've read about the book beforehand. Um, so we know he's, he's this predator. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, you don't depict him in a way that makes it, for example, it would be easy to have drawn him, as you said, as a monster, but you don't. You draw him as a human mm-hmm. being uh very clearly of his generation and looks just like an average person uh of that period and so nothing to to make him stand out in any sense um but his his manner it's it's his demeanor his actions that that make us come to be afraid of him and Mm. ultimately to despise him uh but at the same time yeah it's it doesn't hit you over the head it's something that grows gradually um our feelings about him um that that story in regard to the you know the night that he comes into the bedroom with the kids that's one of those those first moments where we you know at least when i was reading i came away really frightened of the guy uh that really nerved me that scene and then what followed yeah, it's, it, it is unnerving. And, and actually, right after that scene, what, what follows is uh, a kind of montage just showing what day-to-day life was like at Chartwell. 
And uh, because it, it's also important to depict these kinds of hellscapes, like let's say it was a prison story. Um, it's not like, as far as what I can tell from what I've heard, I've never been to prison, um, that there's this kind of deranged gang raping and killing, and it's, it's not a constant. So the, my, my point is that it's important to show that there was a day-to-day -day reality for us kids there, you know, that didn't have to do with uh, the worst possible things. The worst possible things I do show, but they're not happening all the time. See, so it was important in the book to show how the kids got along. It's very important to, to give those kids agency because kids do have some agency in any school context. So, you know, I show myself throwing a dessert on some kid's lap when he won't cough up a little bit of money. And I show another kid leaning on me for a little bit of money. And I show myself becoming friends with that kid because I kind of stand up to him enough that he backs off. And that's how those kinds of childhood friendships actually happen. So it, it was important to me to, to have all this stuff enter into the mix in all this, you know, because these kids also, they come back later on in the story as grownups, but these kids deserve to be shown in all their glory, which is not always, you know, they're not always the best actors because kids aren't either. So that, that was important to have in there. Yeah, and and one of the things that strikes me about Glenn, both in Chicago and in this book, um, is that he doesn't have a lot of friends. Uh, friends are few and far between for him. And so while I w the book doesn't characterize the friendships there as being particularly deep on one hand, but they certainly, the kids do seem to, you know need each other in order to survive through this ordeal that they're, they're going through. I mean, there's no one else to turn to. Yeah, I guess that's, that's the way I'd put it. Um, uh, yeah, the relationships exist, but it's not like, you know, these were deep friendships at all. It's more like we were cronies smoking cigarettes and yeah. hanging out and, and doing stuff like that together more than anything else. Um, and on top of that, you kind of had to watch out because some of the kids were psychos and not those kids that I show in the, mm -hmm. in the story, but there was another kid I was friends with who was just a real sociopath, a really dangerous guy. And it was a mistake on my part to be friends with him. But the fact of it is you weren't really looked after, looked out for by any prefects or anything else because this wasn't, in fact, a real school. So you, you had to watch out that that's, that's the other thing about a place like this that is really daunting because you realize when my character is being taken back to that school and dropped off, it's like, you know, uh, sink or swim kid. <laughs> There's some of that yeah. going on there, you know? Yeah. You're left, you're left alone and, and really, you really are left to your own devices basically. Yeah, you're on your own and, and exactly sink or swim or find your own way to survive and uh, whomever you have to turn to. And really, there's only only the other kids to turn to. And that brings up a question, because uh, in the book, there's the you acknowledge that Lynch had a wife who also taught there, um, but we don't see any other teachers. Uh, I mean, I don't recall. They're there in the background, but yeah, I don't I don't really show them. That's true. Yeah. 
So, and, and you know, the question arises there too, and I guess this is really immaterial to the book, but it, it, it should, th- these adults, again, I, I suppose this is what book, because the, those adults seem to be, they're absent, they're absent morally from something that they're complicit in. I mean, they're, they're they must be aware of the stories about Lynch. They must be aware of, uh, they've seen him con- throw you across a cafeteria. I mean, right. where are, these people are completely absent. And it, it's it's a, it's a good point, and you're not you're not the first person to mention that. Um, that, and I used to think about it myself sometimes because that did happen, and you can see some teachers in the background. In fact, teachers are mentioned as seeing it as mm-hmm. it's happening. I, I recall that in a text. Um, so how is it, and why was it that they didn't report any of this? And you know, that's that's left dangling. So I can understand why people would would wonder about that. One thing I can say to that, though, is that, uh, and this doesn't answer it completely, but um, the point is that those so-called teachers, they were unaccredited. So they weren't real teachers, first of all. This is mentioned in the court case pages. Uh, There's these newspaper pages that are collaged about the court case uh, that happens way later uh, after Lynch is about to get sentenced to prison. Um, so they weren't real teachers, so they were very pliable. And so that is one of the things that kept them from either calling the police or doing anything else. But another way that I would characterize it is simply that, uh, you've got a James Jones situation here where if that becomes the reality of what goes on here stays here, then it will tend to happen even, even with adults there mm-hmm. and that is what happened what it what it brings up though is is one thing uh i could mention that is also not in the book but is significant to me there were no teachers there as i say and that made this also a really bad place to be for all the for other reasons that have nothing to do with say the trauma in this story which is the fact that see i did two years there doing seventh and eighth grade and because there were no real teachers there, there was, in fact, no real schooling there, even though we might like have to read something from some moldy old textbook. It wasn't really being out of school. So by the time I was in a I show this, too, in the second chapter of the book that I'm in some other school, a private school, right. uh, as opposed to a boarding school, um, there was an enormous amount of catching up and, and feeling that you'd been in some uh, continuum for a couple of years, as opposed to being in a school. So there, there's also that, but there's one thing that I will say, and this I've always found interesting. This also wasn't in the book. Um, I had this English teacher who's not a teacher, but, um, a guy there at school who was very encouraging to me with my drawing because drawing became my personal identity at that time when I was at Chartwell and he was very encouraging. And, and one time he said to me, so, so this art, this is what you want to do. You, you want to be a cartoonist, an artist. And I said, yeah. And he just, he said, yeah, okay. Well, a lot of competition. And I still remember him saying that and the way he said it. And it was really a kind of signal moment when he said that, because it, it let me know that if I was going to take my life in this direction that I have, there's going to be competition. In other words, it won't be easy. So mm. 
it's one of these things in life for, for all the difficulties and bad things and that can happen in a place like Chartwell, there were those moments like that, which were actually very helpful. And as I say, he was very encouraging to me about drawing. So. And that's where it seems, at least in Chartwell, you, you suggest that that's, as you said, your identity, you begin to form that yes. identity as an artist. Yes. And that's where you first encounter underground comics. That's where you. Exactly. You were yeah. yeah. And, and so talk about that a little bit. Um, because I mean, there, there is a striking image, a striking image of, of where you there is this confluence of images. It's right after you do a drawing, a recreation of an S. Clay Wilson page. Right, you did right. that, and then after that, it's this confluence of all of the these I, these images from underground comics. There's Wilson right. and Crumb and Williamson and mm -hmm. Lynch. All these people are in there, and there's also Lynch and all of the things that are you know suggested there at chartwell right. it's a really right. powerful coming together you yeah. know of both artistic self-discovery and also the the trauma that you're being subjected to yeah um what i was really doing there was fusing the demonic it was very important to me that that be clear in this chapter that the demonic was this thing that showed itself in my life and it did that by, first of all, me being at this place, which was pretty fucking demonic, you know, everything from that uh, Satan worshiping thing towards the front of the chapter to seeing this work by these cartoonists when I was about 13 or 14. OK, um, so it was it was important to me to depict this world in comics and also this world of comics. I was depicting the boarding school world in comics. And I was also depicting this world of underground comics within that world and just how off the charts crazy all of that stuff was for a kid to be experiencing. I mean, it's funny too, because like on that, that page you mentioned where there's all these different panels together of Crum and Wilson and Moscoso. Um, um, my character is thinking, should I even be seeing this? which is yes. a, funny, a funny question on top of all the other things that he has seen, because he's seen a lot of craziness before we get to that point where he sees that. But, you yeah. know, this, this was my way of showing that uh, it's too much too soon for Glenn. That's, that's what that's all about. And uh, there's also um, in, that, in those collage drawings, there's, as you say, both my headmaster and some of this art from this particular comic, which is Zap number four. And I was also um, sort of riffing on the, the incest angle mm -hmm. in a strip in that comic. The strip is entitled Joe Blow. It's yeah. a crumb comic about, you know, um, this family that is, you know, incesting each other. And very, very disturbing panel, which I drew. I didn't, I didn't like Xerox any of this stuff. I, I drew this panel that's really too much, which is of this dad who has unzipped his trousers and pulled out his penis. And it's drawn in that, you know, that, that crumb 
Basil Wolverton style, like, you know, all yeah. the different cross hatching for every bit of volume. And he, he did that in that drawing of this guy's penis. And so I, I, of course, nailed that man. I was going to draw that so you couldn't even tell that it wasn't a crumb. Yeah, it so, looks like crumb. And that, yeah, and that, and that panel is, in fact, right underneath the panel of a drawing of Lynch drawn in my own style. So it was a matter of, you know, fusing those two things. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, and then Lynch is over there to the right. Uh, you exactly. Know, naked. Yeah. Um, exactly. Which which he often was, and which the the label points to the fact that he often was. So it was a it was a constant sort of um, sexualizing of yeah. the world. You know. Yeah. So so it, it is interesting. You said for Glenn at that moment, it's it's too much too soon. I mean, you're 13 years yeah. old. And yeah. I, I kind of think back to my own experience of being of being 13 and how uh, Catholic upbringing and all of that kind of stuff um, in a small place in upstate New York and how we're taught and how it's it, particularly in that up, kind of upbringing, it's impregnated on your mind, you know, almost imprinted on your brain cells that you're not supposed to look at this stuff. You're not supposed to see this stuff. I felt guilty looking at uh, at the at the uh, drugstore, looking at a copy of Vampirilla magazine. And you're yeah, sure. And, and this is the, what you're being confronted with, and and um, it's just overwhelming. And that's that's what this page feels like. It's like over this overwhelming confluence of all of these things. It's a flood of of imagery that is kind of um, it's like a flood of stuff that comes over you, and and because you're so overwhelmed by it, you don't know how to deal with it. So, were you into comics before you came across underground comics? Because you don't mention them at all. Had you read comics as a kid? Had you been into them, copied them, whatever? Um, you know, I mean, obviously yeah. it wouldn't have been underground comics, but ha was no, that? No, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, see, I've been reading Mad Magazine a lot. And Mad Magazine, of course, was, was directly related to undergrounds. And the fact that Mad Magazine was directly related to Mad, Harvey Kurtzman's Mad, which yeah. had a big influence on underground stuff. Um, but even Mad Magazine had its own certain sort of disreputableness when you were in second or third or fourth grade. So even that related a little bit to underground comics. And like any kid back then, you know, um, early to mid sixties, you know, we loved Mad, Mad Magazine. Um, so there was that, but the thing I always think to bring up in, in this context, that, that's actually very serious for me. And I, I didn't realize it until I really thought about it, but what really imprinted itself on me as a kid, in terms of comics was peanuts. See, I, I never read it as a syndicated strip really, although a little bit maybe, but mainly it, you know, was, was published in book form. And there were these great collections of peanuts, uh, from the mid sixties to late sixties probably was, was probably the ones that I thought of as being really wonderful. But, um, I found Peanuts, and I still do, I haven't read it in a while, to be incredibly powerful as a depiction of childhood trauma. <laughs> Charlie Brown, man, you know, he's having a rough time of it. You know, he's he's in a state of pathos constantly in, uh, you know, having the stomach aches and getting hit by line drives is when he's a pitcher and, you know, trying to kick the football and failing to do it. and and all the other kids and and they're just so unvarnished as as characters you know i mean especially lucy but um mm -hmm. that 
that stuff really, really had an impact on me because I could really feel for those kids and feel for that reality. And yeah, so the emotional content of that probably really had some sort of DNA impact on the work I eventually wanted to do, which was to be able to capture what these experiences feel like, you know? Yeah. You know, this podcast is called Blockhead. So, uh, mm-hmm. Schultz is a, a big, <laughs> you know, a big influence and, uh, somebody I think about a lot and, yeah. um, have talked to a lot of people about, and, um, you know, his impact was extraordinary. I mean, all of a sudden on the funny pages and like you, my usual encounters with Schultz when I was preteen was via these great paperback collections from Foster, which got passed around my neighborhood and you'd find them, you know, laying around some, they they were always around and we shared them. And, uh, um, but not only were you, and, and it, what's extraordinary is how they, you, you could relate to them as a kid, but you could also relate to them as you grew older. And I found that that has continued. Um, but they were funny as hell at the same time. They were funny. Yeah, they were, they were very funny. And, and we, like, I knew people like Lucy, you know, they weren't uh, in my neighborhood. There were bullies in the neighborhood and, and kids like that. But yeah. yet I could laugh at Lucy in, in Charlie Brown. But it's extraordinary, the Pandora's box, I think, that cartoonists like Schultz and maybe Pfeiffer in the, and Walt Kelly, maybe in the 50s and then early 60s, opened up because I think, and, and then yeah. along with Harvey Kurtzman, you know, all of those influences yeah. opened up that box to, to Crum, you know, uh, and to those who followed. I mean... I don't think Crumb would have been exactly the same without those, all of those influences enabling, in particularly in Schultz's case, the discussion of, <clears throat> of issues of personality and the foibles uh, and the difficulties children might face and adults might face too. Yeah. The, the other thing I think is that uh, just in our collective unconscious, I think what Schultz may really have affected is the urge to draw autobiographically in comics Mm. because um the i voice in charlie brown is very potent and it's it's you can't read it without stepping inside his mind and his life and his experiences and you might not want to identify with them but you can identify with them and I think that probably had, as I say, a strong impact on the collective unconscious of cartoonists who, you know, the thing about the underground, as soon as it got going, the autobiographical impulse really showed itself. Like, I, I think it was really there even in ways before, say, Justin Green drawing about his Catholic school upbringing. Um, it was really already there simply because those styles were so fully evolved because I I think that um, the visual style that a cartoonist cultivates and then has says a lot about probably his own worldview, his own life, maybe his own life experiences. And I think that happened a great deal with underground comics, all that stuff by all these cartoonists 
that aren't necessarily thought of as autobiographical. I think of S. Clay Wilson as extraordinarily autobiographical. Yeah. I think that the kind of the kind of off the charts mayhem involved in that guy's mindset is yeah. nothing if not autobiographical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it it just isn't strictly speaking autobiographical. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial free, but free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct rewards. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. Right, it's revealed in, in the mark of the hand and the imagery that, yeah. that cultivates. And, and those, those drawing styles, like... That stuff really blew me away when I saw it for that reason, that these these individual drawing styles were so highly evolved as soon as uh, those underground comics came about. That was a very striking thing, especially in relation to, I didn't read superhero comics because I already didn't like them just by looking mm-hmm. at them. But the machine-like quality, the approach to capturing Batman's cape and feathering it the right way, you know, was the other end of the spectrum from the mm. stuff you saw, like say Rory Hayes or Kim Deitch or any of these other people that they they served no master, and that of course was a very exciting '60s thing. You know, the whole autorist thing was really showing itself too. You know. Oh, absolutely. You know, you know film I, and mm-hmm. rock and roll and stuff. You know. Yeah. Well, the idea that you could use you know what are i have always been identified as as kind of commercial mainstream media as a vehicle for self-expression that in the hands personal stories yeah yeah artists they can be something something other than just tools for mass consumption but something else or entertainment mm -hmm. you know and that's the other thing you know um these comics were opening up a door towards something and comics always have to be entertainment. I mean, I'd always make that clear. You, you've got to be entertaining and engaging people no matter what your story is, mm-hmm. but you could go a lot further and in a lot of different directions. Yeah. By the time comics went alternative, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There's no other way to categorize it really is or characterize it rather is, is to say that underground comics were like an explosion, you know, just of, of creativity and, and personal expression in part as a, as a response to the kind of chains that say the comic book comics code authority had put on mainstream mm-hmm. comics and the, and the infantile uh, approach to comics um, and the way that they their growth as a medium had been stunted in the 50s, right. early 60s. Yeah, I think that explosion was probably a lot more violent because of that code. I sometimes kind of think it all would have happened anyway, simply because like that's where things were headed, man. I mean, the 1960s was just this explosive era culturally, whether it was in books or films or music or comics. I mean, it just things were going to explode. The, it was like the lid had been on too tight 
yeah. by that point. And it just popped off. All this stuff came out. All these artists were going to do what they were going to have to do. There wasn't really any stopping them. They were yeah. going to do it. Yeah, they did. And, and you know, it's interesting. I, I had uh, Dennis Kitchen on the show um, the last last couple of shows, and we, we spent hours talking about this. And the seeds were all there, too, you know, the head shops. I mean, we I don't want to digress into a history of right uh, underground comics, but it's really important to your work. And, and so sure. talking about it is really relevant. But the seeds were there. The head shops were there. The ability to get the work out to people and right. to sell it and to make a li- not a, a great living, but, you know, Dennis was able to enable Jay Lynch and Skip Williamson to make some money from their books and, and et cetera, and Crumb. And there was a, a way in which to survive uh, if not thrive, um, through, through a distribution system. And so all the seeds were kind of percolating in a way for this to oh, happen. Yeah. And, uh, Absolutely. and it led to some extraordinary, extraordinary work. I mean, graphically and as well as in terms of story, in terms of subject material, it's, uh, it, from every direction, you know, it's groundbreaking. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it impacted you and sent you off on uh, on this road and you really never turned back. It's correct. Um, I I wouldn't really have known how to. I I can't I can't work any other way. Um, When when I was at art school, uh, I I studied with Art Spiegelman for a few years and like that was during the era of Raw magazine. And uh, I would sometimes really get lectured by him to move away from underground comics. And it was a it was a very good uh, learning experience for me to do all that because when I was there and a lot of other cartoonists I I know from that era who've done great work were around at that time and and uh, getting published by him uh, there was really a lot to learn about things beyond the underground and for me what that really boiled down to and two words is Dick Tracy. Um, we, we studied that a lot and uh-huh. that became my thing. And you don't see it specifically in my work exactly, except in the use of black, maybe, but the, the black is really my own thing. It's, it's just, I've been drawing that way forever and I don't know if I could draw without using black, but um, we had that pushed on us and that really became a thing. So uh, the whole idea, which was to simplify and think in terms of component parts within a panel so that everything is clear, was uh, it was a great educational experience for me because I learned to do that. And that said, you know, maybe you dance with the one who brought you because my stuff still has an underground feel to it. But it doesn't specifically relate to any specific underground cartoonist anymore. It just feels underground is how I would put it and expressive and brushy and all of that. But the thing that I came away with, if not real simplicity in my drawing is clarity because it's very Mm -hmm. important to me that you be able to see instantly what's going on in every one of those panels. I don't want you getting stuck. I got to be moving you through these panels. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So and, that's important. 
you know, it, you do a lot of um, throughout the book, and this is in Chicago too. You do a lot of big double page spreads, a lot of crowded yeah. scenes where Glenn is surrounded either by, you know, seedy Times Square or he's surrounded by right. a strip joint or whatever. And there, it's jam packed with information. But while it's jam packed with information, it's also very, very clear. Uh, so that while things are stacked on top of one another, layered on top of one another, we can right. see within the scene, we're not lost within the scene. Um, yeah. You know what to look at and when to look at it as you're going or as you're perusing the image. Yeah, that, that that's an important thing to have uh, picked up on from, uh, like I said, being in art school. Um, and there was too much of this in underground comics. By the way, there was like this crazy level of detailed work that these hippies, man, they were just crazy with either too much drugs or too much detailing because they just they just went apeshit with it. And uh, yeah, it's always a matter of that of, of, of control. As a cartoonist, you really need to really control the narrative and the art form and the panels and the layout and all this stuff. It it, it really needs to be kept under control so that people can just go right through it, you know. Yeah, that you don't want you don't to, tripped up or hung up on a panel when you're trying to you're trying to to create a rhythm or a flow to the story. You don't want them to. Yeah, yeah, stuff. yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, it's, so it's always a matter of it's a balancing act. You know what I mean? Enough details to to keep things interesting and fascinating, especially to depict the world that that character is in, but not so many that you know you can't find your way to the next panel. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you know it's interesting because Chester Gould was a master of that. Um, and you know, it, it is interesting to think about the, it, that Art Spiegel and asked you to look at, at Dick Tracy because, uh, Tracy is one of my favorite, you know, one of my favorite forties, fifties comics. Oh, I, yeah. I go back to that stuff, the black and white stuff, you know, um, yeah. it's just yeah. extraordinary how, you know, how compacted his panels are and how composed they are and the relationship of mm. black to white and also the exaggeration he uses you know these exaggerated perspectives these very flat um diagrammatic characters but they're also so exquisitely you know designed uh i mean really brilliant cartooning uh we, yeah. we about it you know uh, a lot there to draw from a lot there to draw from. yeah definitely definitely yeah so you know g- getting back to the to the books, both books, and I like to think of them may, not as volume one as volume two, but one just kind of folds in, you know, leads to the other. I mean, what, one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit was the character of Sarah. Uh, Sarah seems oh, yeah. to be linchpin to me in both books. I mean, she she's very important in in uh, Chicago um, yeah. in, in a very big way. I mean, Sarah. Yeah. Um, She's at the beginning and the end of the book, uh, right. and and there's this there's this incident that I call the Russian roulette incident um, in the book. Right, uh, right, and and she's there too in the sense where you're unable to get a hold of her. Um, I don't say that that necessarily is what leads to the Russian roulette, but it precipitates it. It's it's there. So she's a really important part of Chicago and a part, and that character really. While Glenn doesn't seem to relate to to other friends or characters elsewhere, he does relate to this character. And in sense, in in some sense, I wonder too, as the father suggests sometimes later on, if she if her life and the way she leads her life isn't some kind of template, you know, that Glenn is following yeah. unconsciously or not. 
Um, she shows up in Chartwell too, uh, exactly. you know, in a couple of different situations. I mean, she's really an important connection. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. She really is. She's like the only other character. Well, you know, my parents are in both books, so that's mm-hmm. true. But in terms of a, a, a character to the side of me and my parents, she's the only one who appears in both books. And uh, and she is uh, she is an interesting character. She's she's presented to an extent in both books, really, as a kind of sexual adventurous in a way, you know, and she is. Um, uh, too fast for for my character like uh in in both books but in chicago see she's the stranger that comes into town who upends things to an extent if you want to go with the plot chestnut of a character doing that she does that she comes into town beginning of chicago Mm -hmm. and uh my character is very much into hanging out with her and He's also fascinated by her because she's done some real living. And that living has included sex for money. Mm -hmm. And it also includes, he soon finds finds out that she is pregnant from a guy she was with. And so my character is both in awe and a little bit in fear of the kind of lifestyle that she's run with already. And she's younger than him. So she's had sex for money. She's 16. She's also pregnant. And my character being the suburban type, uh, lily white environment type kid he's in that environment from, uh, he is fascinated. And maybe he wants some of this because she's taken off. She dropped out of school and ran off. So it's possible that my character, when he does that, he's followed that same template, as you suggested. So she's a really important figure as somebody who uh, is both a cautionary figure as well as somebody who excites Glenn to because he's also sexually attracted, but he's not sure what to do with her because she's, you know, she's fast, she's out of his league and, and he knows it. And um, it's, it's played somewhat humorously, her character in Chartwell Manor because she's also too fast for him, but he's also not sure if she's even interested in him. And on top of that, he's trying to do the usual artist with the model trick. He's trying to get her to sit for a portrait, which she agrees to. But the turnaround is that she does a better job drawing him just for fun while not even trying than he can draw of her. So she's this kind of dangerous figure. She, she, uh, she outclasses him in a way. And finally, ultimately, in Chartwell Manor, he hasn't seen her for a while, and she shows up at a party, and he's on a lot of drugs and alcohol and pot, and she makes a move at him, and he can't handle it because it recalls for him being 
uncomfortably groped by his headmaster. So it is, it's really showing just uh, the undercurrent of, of trauma in these lives, because I would consider the character of Sarah to also be a character with some trauma in her background as well. And it's partly, it, it's alluded to in Chicago that her parents met in a concentration camp and mm -hmm. uh, growing up with that didn't do her any favors. It wasn't easy for her. And so, um, but yeah, she, she was a, she's an interesting character here. She's not, she's not your, run-of-the-mill teenage kid that a character like mine uh, might hang out with. She presents something that's much more intriguing and risky. Yeah, she does. And she sends, you know, from as a reader looking at the book and looking back at the book now, she's, her, his desire for her, his admiration for her, in some sense, fills the character of Glenn with this this longing, uh, whether longing for her sexually, but also longing to be like her in a way and to have that, those kind of experiences and sets him up for the moment where he leaves and goes to Chicago when he, he drops out of art school uh, in Cleveland. But what's also interesting, and I'm going to have to put up spoiler alerts on the, on the head of this uh, podcast but what's also interesting is at the end of the the very end of the book and of of chicago um they consummate their relationship they're adults now she's gone through what she's gone through he's gone through what he's gone through um there's still a question you know glenn has gone through he's he's been divorced and he's you know um he's had some difficulty still he's still dealing with uh, you know what appears to be sexual addiction or whatnot and and Yet he comes to this moment, she comes to town, they consummate their relationship. And at the end of that, she leaves and she, she leaves and he's left. He meets up with his daughter. And this leads us to that last sequence at, at Greenwood Cemetery where they sit down and, and they close the gate and they're left there in the cemetery, the father and the daughter together having a moment. And it's clear. And, in, and this is true in both books, you know, both books, Glenn and his daughter close both books. Um, you know, it's clear that something has come to an end in this sojourn or whatever, whether it's Ulysses journey or, or whatnot, Glenn has kind of come to the conclusion of this period in his life or these, these needs, this need in his life to be like Sarah or to follow Sarah. It's almost as though she opened the book and closed the book and, and that his consummation with her ends that need you know, to follow that path any longer, that he's resolved those, that issue, as it were. I don't know if you felt that in drawing it or if you conceived of it that way, but that's kind of how I look at it as I look at the book. Well, I think that's probably accurate. I think that is, in fact, very true. I think that is very true. You know, so, I don't think I was thinking of it that way, um, but I think that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah, she's kind of like the guide, you know, in in the book that leads Glenn on a on a journey he may not have otherwise have taken or may have taken, who knows? But but she certainly is that, you know, the the one who's gone before, and at the end of the book comes back, you know. Um, it, yeah, it's quite it's interesting. And so both books end with you and your daughter. Uh huh. 
And uh, so, you know, was that conscious that you were ending both books with a, an interaction between you and your daughter? And and of course, you know, to me, reading him, I have, uh, you know, an interpretation. But I mean, was that something that you set out to do or when you were did you intentionally recall it in in Chartwell from Chicago? Uh, did I intentionally recall it from yeah, did Chicago. you, did, you know, did you, was it, was it oh. intentional to, to close both books this way? Actually, I don't believe it was. Um, although, I guess what I'll say is that uh, sometimes I, I, I look at things simply in terms of, um, uh, I won't call it entertainment, but um, in terms of, I guess, uplift, one thinks of that sometimes, especially with a book like Charwell, because, man, that's a dark book. That's got a lot of dark stuff happening. And one of the things that that it does bring up, uh, Charwell Manor, is a thing I once heard in uh, in AA, which was which was, you know, my character is in AA, but it, I don't make recovery. This is not a recovery memoir, as I said uh, forward. But um, my my character does a little bit of time and in some of these 12-step group meetings, uh, but how was I gonna put this? Uh, well. It's okay. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll remember it, but um, a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to uplift and that I wasn't going to be cliched about it and oh now I remember I was I was told in some of these meetings sometimes and this was said more than once by different people in those meetings said that everything you got up to every bit of troublemaking or whatever bad shit you got into when you were active as an alcoholic you're going to get into that at some point when you're sober. I don't know why that's a that's a metric or I don't even know if it's true, but I was trying to show that in in my character's story that you know he had sleezed around before uh at a much younger point and then he sleezes around again even though he's sober. Mm -hmm. And uh and it was important to show that but to also show that there are ways to not necessarily follow all your impulses and bringing that back to having my daughter in the book that's what that really was about because um she is a ray of light in both books she is a, a kid and uh when you become reacquainted with innocence. It really does a number on you because um, innocence is not something, in my opinion, that is a constant in life, especially the older you get, especially as you go into adolescence and then past it. And then when you have a child, that innocence is really staggering. And you, you have to look at that and take it seriously. It's not innocence like, 
I don't know, <laughs> Norman Rockwell painting it's innocent or whatever, you know, Walter mm -hmm. Kane painting or, or what have you. It's it's innocent in this way that you want to protect it. And um, so I needed to show that, that my character needed something beyond himself probably to really change and that the daughter represents that, you know? So that was the case in both books. I'm sure that was, that was the, the impulse, you know? Yeah. And it certainly reads that way. I mean, because his interactions with her are unique. They, they take you out of the world that you've been in throughout the, the other, you know, the remainder of the book and, and take you someplace else. I mean, they do show that he's grown. They show that he's, you know, um, grown beyond the boundaries of himself and his own concerns to be concerned with another. Um, and uh, because that, that's something you don't get in, in the books either, except, you know, you, until that moment, um, Glenn's concern for his daughter is, is what humanizes him, you know, and, and broadens, makes him more than just this tragic victim, but a survivor and, and a survivor right. you know, with, as you said, light in his life. And, and yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. yeah that, that, that was very important to me. Um, and just really, <clears throat> as I said, for the book itself, uh, it has to have that light in it. You know, you, you can't you can't go with pure darkness, man. You know what I mean, I mean, my my drawing style is dark enough and there's enough darkness amongst the characters. And, and also, see, one of the things that's really dark in the book, I find, is the tendency amongst a great many of the characters to ever face themselves ever face the past to ever really look at it and that also is what a memoir is always going to be about so from my standpoint of course i'm going to be attempting to do that but um i was really trying to put a spotlight on this this aspect of of life and humanity which is simply that you know we don't basically do that too much i mean not in my opinion um we look at things because we have to look at them um it's a memoirist's job what he or she is paid for to really look at stuff. You know what I mean? Because, you know, we got to get through life. We got to do what we got to do, et cetera, et cetera. But we know we all have this interior stuff happening that maybe we face, maybe we don't. But it really is a memoirist's job, in my opinion, to face those things, you know, to um, make that universal and bring insight to it. So, but and yeah, you know. It's in some of the relationships or some of the, the, the ways in which you've structured the books, um, one sequence following another, you know, you make those moments, um, you make them meaningful, you add something to them. Like, for example, again, that situation in Chicago, which is probably the most harrowing moment is where Glenn is playing with the gun. Um, right. And how you underscore that with both the, the things that follow and the things that come after that, um, that, that sequence is, is frightening and that your ability to confront that and also your ability to draw in both books, to draw Glenn out as a character, that's not always likable. I mean, you don't do anything to make the character likable in that sense. Um, you right. take us through what he's feeling, uh, you, you, what he's experiencing, you introduce us to his thoughts um, and those thoughts aren't always pleasant. Those thoughts aren't always likable thoughts. They're, sometimes they right. make the reader step back and say, holy, 
you know, holy shit, what, what's going on in this kid's head, you know? But of course, we also relate what's happened to him, what's going on in, in his head. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's true. You, you don't spare any, any the, you don't spare yourself, really, uh, from that examination. And that must not, that, that can't be an easy thing to do. To, to be honest with you, it's really not that hard for me. It's just how I think. Um, I, if it was hard for me, I don't think I would do it. I, I think there's a reason most people don't do memoir or really delve into that stuff, because it probably is hard for them. Um, it's not so much that it's like exactly easy, but uh, I don't know. I mean, personally, I also I just go where the stories are. And um, uh, I always thought Chicago was, was a hell of a story just because... Um, Wanting to delve into that world of, say, underground comics or the underground or whatever you want to call it from a suburban kid standpoint and that kid getting his face rubbed in it, I knew that it had potential just because, like, conflict always makes for story. So I knew I could use that. And then I also just, as I say, uh, the whole thing of um, being on the streets and starving is a hell of an experience to try to write from the perspective of. So. I thought that was good. And then meeting your heroes like Crumb and some of these other guys, Skip Williamson, et cetera. And the whole thing being kind of a dark experience as opposed to being a positive one. I knew I wanted to do that because I knew that also ran contrary to what I tend to see, which is, you know, people meet their hero, say Robert Crumb, and the next thing you see they're the new R. Crumb or some shit like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't want to go with something positive. I thought it would be like funnier and more true if it was a quasi dark experience. And then of course, meeting Muhammad Ali on the street was also so surreal that you just want to want to try and use the stuff as story. And that that's really my point. Um, for that matter, you know, the, the handgun scene where I'm playing Russian roulette, those are things that, I don't see all these things are, see, are things that I don't see drawn that much Mm-mm. as a personal story. And that's going to lead you to think, well, then I probably should do this because, you know, if these things aren't done much uh, and you've got the balls to face them, the guts to draw it, uh, you'll probably have something because uh, as far as I know, there, there aren't that many memoirs of, this kind. I haven't, I haven't seen a boarding school memoir. Maybe there have been one. I there's been a couple for all I know, but I doubt it looked like mine. So, you know, you know yeah. where the stories are. Yeah. Well, obviously you've, you've done that. And that, that sequence from Chicago, just, it's hard to escape it because it is really so impactful. And so, so again, frightening and overwhelming, and uh, you know, yeah. I don't even have words for for it really because it's you've done it in such a way that it makes it again very visceral and and traumatic, and we feel you know, it's almost like re- looking at those images and going from panel to panel is almost like hearing the shots in your head, boom, 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 you know, one way or another. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that. and it's it, it's. You don't know where to hide from it as a reader, you know, you really don't and, and uh, or where to go. And you know that this kid is on the edge of something and you don't want them to fall off that edge. And yet at the same time, you're obviously aware 
that both you, the reader, and and here write on a very thin wire. And uh, so it, it's a really scary moment in that book. Um, a lot of the book, you know, and I, I hate to keep focusing on going back to Chicago, but it, it really did set me up for Chartwell. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, going back to it again, it does seem like the character of Glenn in the beginning in that graveyard, uh, the cemetery where he's he's thinking things through about the future and what he might do and all of this. Mm-hmm. He's got mm-hmm. lots of illusions about life and life on the edge. And the book, as you say, it's like he goes through this period where each of those illusions is kind of stripped away one by one, uh, whether it's meeting his heroes or something like that. Um, He loses his innocence one step at a time. Uh, Well, actually, (laughs) when he goes to Chicago and he's on the street very quickly. But, yeah, one step at a time, you know, it's one thing after another. Uh, And those dreams kind of fall away. Yeah. so one has to ask about Crum. I mean, uh, obviously Crum has continued to be an influence in your life or a, it, it, maybe not exactly a mentor, but, uh, you know, he's got to have played a part. Uh, he's read the book, obviously. He, he lent a quote to it. Um, mm-hmm. So your interactions with him, it, it sounds like at least at first it wasn't what you hoped. Uh, it was something else entirely. So tell me a little bit about, you know, that kind of relationship between yourself and Robert Crumb. Okay. Well, I, uh, I don't know that I can say I have a relationship with him. Um, but, uh, I, I liked drawing that experience because by the time that happens in the book and this is how it went, I, I'd been on the streets off and on and it had been really harrowing. And at this point, some rich kid puts me up in a motel to, in exchange for drawing a comic strip for him of somebody's poem, a uh, poet named Jack Michelin. Um, I get to stay in his motor lodge. And so that's where that scene gets going, where I, I get a phone call from Skip Williamson who says that Crumb is in town and come on over for dinner. So I, I really liked that experience as something to draw because uh, when you're 19 and somebody like that is your hero, uh, you don't fully fathom just how much of a hero they are to you. They're just somebody that, you know, you're sort of having dinner with and a joint is being passed around and you're, you're just there. And so you, you don't fully absorb everything that's going on. And it's not like in that particular context, I was really hoping that, Crumb was going to tell me I was God's gift to the world or anything. Uh, But there was just a feeling along with that meeting with him and then other cartoonists that I met in Chicago that like, this is a really rough game. You know what I mean? See, having, having grown up in the suburbs and this is how my character is shown earlier in the book, uh, thinking that this is really some kind of Mecca or something, this underground comics world that it's actually, uh, it's, it's kind of, kind of down and dirty a little bit, you know, much more than my character would have in fact realized or hoped for, but wasn't savvy enough to realize that that's what the arts can mean. And so that, that's what I was really trying to, to depict in that, 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 
you know, being that kind of fish out of water and, and somewhere else like that. On the one hand, it was amazing meeting him and, and meeting him with these other artists, you know, like Jay Lynch too, who's there. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was stepping out of the world that I knew, but it was also into a world that I didn't really know. And I didn't really know how to accommodate myself with it because I was kind of crazy and I had been starving and uh, had been on the streets. And so it was, uh, it was sort of uh, a sense of dissociation a little bit in, in terms of that, of yeah, being sort of lost. That, that, was, that was the feeling at the time. In actual fact, you know, I, I will say this, uh, I, I presented that scene a little bit more darkly than it may have been. Um, because I'll, I'll say this about Robert Crumb. I mean, uh, he, he doesn't come across as like, you know, <laughs> Mr. Handshake, nice guy, friendly and all that. Um, but when you meet him in any context, but the, but the fact of it is he's extraordinarily generous and, uh, you know, that, that's just, that's the way he is. And that gets lost in the mix because he's such a cultural icon and people, he's almost like the Beatles. It's like everybody thinks they have a piece of him. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Everybody mm -hmm. has their fam favorite work by him and, uh, he's so famous and everything that he's not often thought of as being generous. And he, in fact, is very generous. Um, I think he was generous with his time for me and he was definitely generous in terms of giving me the endorsements that he did for my book. So, you know, yeah, but well, I, yeah. Well, I was just yeah. going to say, and in the book, he, he, uh, you know, he looks at your work and he's very, he's very encouraging actually. Uh, you know, and, yeah, yeah. For the most part. Yeah. You know, um, so, I mean, that, that was a great thing. He didn't have to be, he could have, you know, obviously, uh, he's probably confronted with folks who want to show him their work all the time. And, uh, but he was, he was rather kind to a 19 year old kid. I thought it was, it was a, a nice, <laughs> nice moment on a number of levels, but also interesting because, uh, because it was a little bit dark and, um, yeah. rather being an uplifting moment, um, in the book. So uh, that's kind of interesting. Do you, well, obviously, we talked a little bit about your connection to underground comics um, mm. and and that scene. But do you see yourself in that in that light or do you see yourself more as as part of like the 90s generation of, of cartoonists who were establishing themselves at that period of time, whether it's Dan Close or, you know, uh, Chris Ware or Seth or somebody like that? Um, I mean, do you, do you see yourself as part of that generation or, rep, or you know, second generation? Well, I, I, I am part of that second generation, whether I see myself that way or not. But uh, so and that's another thing, because um, I have been like deeply influenced by the first wave of underground comics. And uh, the one person who was kind of a mentor to me for a time was Kim Deitch, who oh. was uh, very uh, positive about my work and, and um I wouldn't quite call him a mentor because I didn't, I didn't like learn any tricks, drawing tricks from him or anything like that. But um, he was somebody I very much admired and a uh, great storyteller. And I, I learned, I think a lot about taking storytelling very seriously from him uh, because he was one of the best of the storytelling cartoonists, uh, underground cartoonists, in my opinion. So there was that, but in terms of the 90s stuff, uh, in the 90s, I was editing an anthology with um, a friend of mine, cartoonist Kaz, 
who uh-huh. uh, we we worked on a book, this book called Snake Eyes, and it became in its way uh, kind of a hot property in terms of getting a lot of the best of these newer cartoonists in there. And we were doing something that was very consciously not going to be like Raw Magazine um, because we wanted to do something that that felt more sort of, I don't know, not pulpy, but just comic booky or something. We, we wanted that. And there were a bunch of artists that hadn't really had much exposure that were going to work well in there. And it had a little bit of a down and dirty vibe to it. Uh, it wasn't an arty type comic. Uh, it's hard for me to characterize it any more than that. But a lot of the character, the cartoonists that we brought in uh, had some rough edges in a way that was, uh, it was slicker than say Weirdo, which was, and some of the artists like myself had been in Weirdo, but it was a more polished package than that. And that experience also had a big effect on me because um, I, I noticed by you know being around a lot of these artists, including Kaz and some others, that they were doing a lot of brushwork. And I saw that as a real challenge because from my experience, what, what often happens with cartoonists is uh, there's an urge to use the repeatograph pen, this very cold pen that gives a uniform line out of fear of not getting a perfect line. And so this, this had a big impact on me being around him and these other artists who were doing brushwork because you can't completely control the brush line. It's gonna mm-hmm. kind of go where it goes sometimes. And that became a really liberating tool for me to use when I embraced it. And I mentioned earlier that I, I put aside the 32 page book of Charwell Manor I was working on and just worked in the sketchbook and I got very freed up for having done that, for for managing to learn how to um, loosen up with the brush. And my work still isn't what you would call loose, but it has a different feel to it than it did before I really took that on board. So that's just by way of showing that throughout time and decades, you're going to have different interactions that are going to affect your work. And that was, that was a positive one for me, in my opinion. Um, are you still working with, a, with uh, brush and ink and, and paper? Oh yeah. It's, it's mm-hmm. mainly, I, I don't do anything on computer. I just like, I, I scan the stuff in and, you know, if I'm doing color, then it'll be Photoshop color, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's all, it's all done on paper. It's all done on paper with, with ink. Um, oh, yeah. And so you're using, you're using the brush, almost exclusively i mean you are it does appear to be there you know there are some elements of of line work maybe you're using croquil or lettering no i don't i, I use repeatograph for lettering um there there's some really minute details there that like you know you you can't use a brush you screw it up yeah. but for just about everything else um yeah it's like what this is also something this this dates back to like something I learned about Harvey Kurtzman, which was like, you know, these covers that he did for Mad and Mm -hmm. these war comics. um, That's amazing brushwork. But the the interesting thing that you get, see, if you're a meticulous draftsman or whatever it is you are, a penciler, uh, even if you're not a great draftsman, but if you're meticulous, um, 
it can have an interesting uh, effect to use the brush line on top of this very tight pencil line because it it shifts it 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 actually disguises the meticulousness of it it doesn't entirely disguise it because you're still going to feel what the artist was doing from the pencil but it changes it because it's a looser line it's a different kind of line it's a spongier line so when you are doing that it will make it look different. So that, that's really true of Kurtzman's work because the brush brush work, those brush lines on his covers are amazing. Oh, yeah. They're incredibly vibrant and uh, alive. Oh know. yeah, his, his brush work is really, you know, um, just very immediate, it feels like. Uh, and, you know, then a lot of his layouts are like that too. Um, I don't know if you've seen the stuff uh, in Dennis Kitchen's book on uh, Harvey Kurtzman at the end of it, there are all these great vellum, uh, you know, overlays uh, of work he wow. did, little Annie Fanny, and a lot of marker work. And um, there's a lot of great brushwork in there. And he's just, he is, uh, he, he he was free with and, and loose with that. Of course, you know, it was taken by over by Will Elder and, you know, given that treatment for publication for Playboy. But, right. but the stuff itself is just uh, gorgeous, just gorgeous stuff. Yeah, I know, I know. It's amazing. Um, I, I mentioned earlier studying uh, with Art Spiegelman at SVA, and one thing that was a real revelation for me um, was looking at this strip. I think it's a six-page strip by Kurtzman called "The Corpse on the In Imgen." Yeah. And do you know this strip? Yes, I and, do. Uh, it's yeah, it's this amazing strip about hand-to-hand -hand combat, an American GI against a Korean, and uh, it's extraordinary. And to really look at that strip and take it apart was a revelation for me because it really showed me that essentially a comic uh, is a mechanism and it had better be a working mechanism. And that's what that really obviously was because you saw that like it was very carefully worked out both with the layouts and with the text, there's exactly three lines of text above practically every panel. And just seeing the care with which that was worked out, it's very important, I believe, for cartoonists um, to get beyond the visuals. The, you know, as a, as a comic book artist, what really grabbed you in the first place in a lot of cases was like, you saw some amazing splash panel. Um, and in my case, that might have been crumb. The splash panels were incredible. The covers were incredible. And you see those visuals, man, and you're like, holy shit, I got to draw. I got to draw like crazy. I got to, you know. So you, you fall into that and you want to do amazing art. And somewhere along the line, somebody's telling you, you know, by the way, you got to have a good story for which to put, you know, that too. And you're like, oh, I'm just going to draw. And so, you know, it, it, it takes a while to really grasp that just how important idea and story are. Uh, and that, as I say, this has to be a working mechanism. And so that was, that was very important to see that with Kurtzman. And I think that's one reason why his stuff has survived so well, Kurtzman's. It hasn't dated. I mean, the best stuff definitely hasn't at all, the stuff in Mad and that yeah. strip I just mentioned. It's, it's just as good as it ever was. And it, it's because it was so perfectly worked out, you know? Yeah, and his his stuff for uh, the war magazines as well. Uh, you oh know, yeah, all incredible. All that stuff was was incredible.
Um, and and you're talking about how it's how well it's all worked out. So when you sat down to work on you know Chartwell Manor, um, did you what what's the process in terms of writing an image? Uh, is it something that happens all together? Do you work out a rough detail, rough plot line for how is it that you you construct the story? Well, the the first thing usually, actually always, especially with a book, you know, like a graphic novel, is to write pretty much everything I know about the subject matter, write everything I know about that story as I intend for it to probably be. So I might write hundreds of pages of prose just about the material. Um, that's been my thing. And I usually do that. And from there, I will start considering the entire arc of it. And with Chartwell Manor in particular, uh, and it wasn't very difficult, I should say, but um, I figured out, I think early on that it was going to be um, five different chapters and, or something like that. And not unlike Chicago, I knew I was gonna do something that I really enjoyed, which was you end a chapter and then you pick up years later and I was very inspired by some of these movies like The Deer Hunter or Raging Bull that would do these very uh, exciting cuts. They, those, those cuts are very like risky to me to, to skip and not show the basic training of these guys in The Deer Hunter. There they are, man. They're playing Russian roulette. You know what I mean? You don't even get that much from where they are in the town of Pennsylvania. You just get there they are and they're in Vietnam and it's life or death, you know? And, so I was I was very inspired by that kind of thing, and I and I knew I was going to be doing some of that in Charwell Manor, where you would have the first heavy lifting, say, chapter, which is all the stuff that's going on at the boarding school. It's about eighty pages, and then the following chapters, which for me is where the real drama of the story happens, which is between my character and my parents' characters, and you would move through those chapters and through time, all the way up to a point in middle age and late middle age in my fifties, you know, with my daughter. So I had figured out that that structure was probably gonna be the thing. And then I worked out the breakdowns of all this stuff uh, carefully enough that some of them, if they weren't working, I could throw out those pages, but I had that all nailed down before I would start penciling each chapter. And I think I had the entire book nailed down in terms of breakdowns. And what I then did each time I finished a chapter and I was gonna start a next one was show it to my wife and see if it passed muster. Because my wife is a, is a writer and a very sharp editor. And before I got the green light to start filming the next chapter from her, I would, you know, show it to her and we would hash it out. And that's pretty much how it worked. That was how the whole thing got done. And there were things that she saw in the last chapter that she thought were cliched. So I threw them out and redid them. And that was about it in terms of changes that got made. It, it, it mostly fell into place like I knew it would. I mean, I, I actually think of Chartwell Manor as kind of a ready-made in terms of 
all these things I knew I could use as a narrative and they would all happen. Um, so that was not too difficult. And so it was just a matter of uh, process of penciling 236 pages, which took its time. But, and then the entire book was penciled and then the entire book was lettered. That's something I'd never done before, but it helped my lettering, which is not so hot to letter the entire book all in one go. So, oh, wow. That must've been, um, yeah, I that was a process. That, yeah. That would have, that would bum me out. I think, uh, you know, the, <laughs> you know yeah, that, it would have bumped me out if I didn't get used to it because nobody, I don't know, man, the only, the only people who like lettering are letterers, but, comic book artists are like, shit, if I could just hire somebody to do this. And I thought of doing that, but people were like, nah, just do it. So mm -hmm. I did. Yeah, I just can't. Oh, man, I couldn't do I couldn't do it because I'd be constantly going, but I can't wait to ink this page, you know? I know, I know, I know. I can't wait to get back. To do I have to go? Do I have to do this? You know, and, and I mean, doing lettering one page at a time, I get that. But wow, 236 <laughs> pages. I No, nah, I'd be playing know, but lead again. You know, <laughs> but the thing of it is, you do actually get used to it, and it's not—I um, don't know—it's not as bad as you'd think once you get used to it. <laughs> well, this is why. So, you know, it, I don't know. You know, you could also, you know, you could also create a font, you know, and, and do it that way. But, I know, I know. know. Well, the the ones that have been uh, translated, like a, I the the German edition came mm -hmm. back to me. Uh, couple months ago or so and uh it was interesting to see how they how they did that you know and they they had come up with their own font for it right and mm -hmm. the the letters are like much smaller than i would ever do um and the sound effects are kind of funny to read as well but the spanish edition which i don't have a copy of yet but i've seen a couple of pages posted on instagram it looks like they either hired a letter or they they got somebody doing a better font job huh. <laughs> than the German edition. So it was good to see. It's interesting, interesting to see how they do this. They probably could, they could have taken your lettering and made a font out of it. And I would, you know, because I, I'm one of those people who really feels like the lettering is obviously part of the artwork. And when it's a personal yeah. voice, it should be the artist's lettering. Like, yeah, yeah. I can't see anybody yeah. else lettering on top of peanuts. Right. And the same thing right. is true with yours. Your lettering is part of your visual handwriting. So, you know, I would yeah. think the best thing to do if they're going to translate it is to make a font out of your, your lettering, but okay, what the hell? You know, I, I I wish you had told them, but yeah. you know, the, the, these things just happen this way. They they had me do a new cover for it, which is fine. The the, the cover for the German edition uh, is good. I don't think I'd call it better than the original, but it's it's a little bit more noir. Uh, came out good, and they yeah. paid me, so I didn't have hey, to do it for not? nothing. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So the whole process took you about, uh, you know, what, how many years to do Chartwell? I mean, just uh, nothing. I'd like to say to it. Get to I'd it. like to say it took less than five. It probably took about five. five probably eight. took that long. And yeah. I was working all the time on it too. I'm not I'm not somebody who like you know takes days off. I work all the time. So, which helped. It it really helps to be working all the time. If you can, Absolutely. if you can put all your time into drawing, it really will help your drawing. From my experience, you know. Yeah. Well, it's what it's like playing you know playing music. It's like playing. Yeah. Music. Yeah. I'm sure. You know, you don't like to, um, I don't like to let a day go by and not draw something, 
and uh you know because it really is like stretching your fingers and mind body you know coordination kind of stuff staying in touch with it is really important well glenn you must feel great satisfaction in the way this book has been received it is a really a triumph and it is great achievement um and a very powerful and necessary work i think for for this world of ours unfortunately but it is really uh very brave piece of, of writing and uh and just unlike anything i've read before and uh so i congratulate well, that's good. great piece of thank work thank you yeah thanks a lot man I well i really appreciate it jeff yeah well i'm i was thrilled to have you here today and I'm, we've spent two hours together and it's gone by very quickly and uh yeah. i thank you for the time out of your sunday well, I, I appreciate doing it, man. And I, I will say I, I love doing interviews with people who know exactly what they're talking about and, you know, who know my work. So I, I appreciate it a lot. Well, I don't I'm get glad that you, often. Yeah, well, I'm glad you enjoyed the, you know, discussing it because uh, it'd be a drag otherwise. And, <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but I do yeah, take but it. Was, it was good. I take it seriously and I, I try to do my homework. And uh, and one of the things that's tell. really important for me is, you know, making the connections between between your work and and looking for those things that are impactful and then going deep and finding out what's at the root of it. And uh, there's more to deal with. There's so much stuff in this book to deal with that I don't think yeah. we could get to all of it in one interview maybe sometime we'll come back and we'll talk about it again because uh, as i read it again i'm going to find more to you know that intrigues me oh that'll be great man i'd, I'd yeah. be happy to do it all right all right Definitely. glenn well thanks again for being here thanks thanks for having me so there you have it glenn head of chartwell manor chicago i really thank glenn for spending an afternoon with us Uh, not too long ago, and I hope you enjoyed the interview. Be sure to look for Chartwell Manor wherever great graphic novels are sold. Uh, Fantagraphics, uh, check out their website or look for your favorite comic shop. That's the best place to pick up a book like Chartwell Manor, your favorite comic shop, a comic shop near you. Last but not least, you can also pick up Chartwell Manor and Chicago online at Amazon.com and other booksellers online so be sure to to pick those books up you will not be disappointed uh they're really really powerful powerful works of graphic fiction well as for me i'm i'm involved in a bunch of stuff and you can follow that on instagram at green screen comic that's one word green screen comic i'm there uh and right now of course i'm working on uh, i'm tying up really uh, finalizing Green screen comic number two, uh, or number three, if you count zero zero as the first issue. So it's really the third issue I've worked on for green screen. Uh, the completion of a story arc that started in in the previous issue. It will be on Kickstarter sometime this spring, uh, sooner hopefully rather than later. And I'm really excited about it because it's it's really looking really good. I'm I'm really pleased with it. it looks even better than the last issue. So I'm on page 26 today, and uh, who knows how quickly the rest will go, and um, hopefully it'll be done really soon, and on Kickstarter, 
even by the time the next episode shows up. I don't know. Who knows? Anyway, on Instagram at Green Screen Comic, you can follow me there doing doing that, working on that right now. And then the next project that I've got going on is this his, this history of a deservedly obscure, forgotten a comics company called Have a Banana. You don't remember them, right? Well, it's because no one does. Uh, Have a Banana began as a pulp magazine publisher, just like many comics publishers began as pulp magazine publishers back in the 1920s. Saw the signs that comic books were the way to go. It quickly sort of, you know, moved into the comic book realm, taking some of its pulp heroes with it into comic books and published comic books well until the 1960s and then moved into animation, animating some of its own characters uh, back in the day. In fact, the inspiration for green screen comes from Have a Banana, animated TV show from the 1960s that was really aired only a few times before it was canceled. Barely saw the light of day and, and then was quickly forgotten. And there are only scraps of this history left. I'm putting it all together. Really, whatever scraps I can find, whatever little pieces of history that have come to me here and there from uh, uh, people out there in, on the Instagram world who have sent things to me and, and things that I've discovered on my own. Uh, I will tell you this, that the uh, here in Binghamton, New York, the Rod Serling Memorial Gazebo uh, has played a, a, a very crucial role in, uh, in my foray into comics history here and the study of the Have a Banana Company. Well, that's my next project. It's cobbling together all this information into a book called the, uh, what is it going to be called? Banana Peels, uh, the story of Have a Banana and uh, a comics company. And um, I, I can't tell you how excited I am about it. And, uh, and if you follow me on Instagram, you can find some info about it there now. You scroll through my little feed, you'll find out a lot of little tidbits about Have a Banana. Uh, you'll also uh, keep up with the newest developments now. Those will be coming along this summer once I finish this green screen comic that I'm working on now. That'll be <clears throat> followed up this summer by, you know, my foray into comics history. Uh, hopefully it'll be the next, you know, uh, great comics history book I, I hope so uh, we'll see it will be it will be uh, something you can watch develop on Instagram at green screen comics so check it out there you don't want to miss it because of course you're interested in comics history and this is going to change your perception I swear to God of the development of uh, of comics and pulp magazines and, and even animation in the 1960s um, I think it's a groundbreaking piece, so uh, be sure to follow it on Instagram at Green Screen Comics. Okay, so, oh, and don't forget Patreon. If you want to support this show uh, and, and help me out, because there's a lot of work goes into this show and, and some funds too, uh, then please head on over to patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N, where in any amount that you can see your way to contributing is greatly appreciated and will go directly into... Uh, uh, the the kitty, the petty cash that will help me keep this boat afloat. Um, and yet, if you can't contribute, that's okay. You can write up a review, right? Five-star only, though, please. A five-star review uh, is a big help to drawing an audience this way. I know, you like you, uh, you know, when we look in, we're looking for podcasts, we look for that 5-0 rating. And uh, so anything you can do to help get this rating up, uh, would be greatly appreciated also. So a little review, a little five-star thing um, goes a long way to keeping this, uh, this endeavor alive. So 
enough of the plug. I hope you will be well. I hope you will be safe and take care of yourself and your loved ones. I hope I hope you've got some plans for spring. Uh, it's it's coming, you know. It snowed here yesterday. We got about 7 inches, but I but today it's like f- almost 50 degrees and that snow is melting away and spring is really struggling, you know, to fight its way through. And it will it will succeed. It will be victorious and we will see the flowers bloom and the sunshine sometime very soon so uh look forward to that and until next time thanks for listening